Hi, I'm Mark O'Brien, writer, director, and star of The Righteous, and you are listening to ContraZoom. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of extending our Fantasia Festival coverage. Both Rachel and I conducted an interview solo for movies that screen during the fest, and we are excited to share them with everyone. I'm happy that we get to continue to talk about this amazing fest. Rachel, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I am doing really well. So this was kind of cool where we're both kind of doing our own little side thing and then we're coming together. It's like Outcast, the speaker box, Love Below, and putting it together, a greatest hits package. Are you big boy or are you Andre? Oh, you know, I think I'd much rather be Andre, <laughs> but I feel like you're cooler. So you, you know what? Andre. But see, I'd rather be big boy. There we go. There, go. there we go. <laughs> that works. I'm glad I made that reference up on the spot, and it's working out so well for me here. Excellent. You can be Andre. I can be Big Boy. It's great. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Well, first up, we have Mark O'Brien, who wrote, directed, and starred in the Canadian horror film The Righteous. Have a listen to that right now. Who are you? It's my foot. I thought I could manage it, but... It's sprained, bad, maybe cut to a freight look. I need some help. Can you do that for me? Well, what happened? I'm lost. With your foot? What happened to your foot? I'm, I'm lost. I don't know what happened to it. We are now joined by Mark O'Brien, an actor you might know from such films as Arrival, Bad Times at the El Royale, Marriage Story, and Ready or Not. As a director, he has made several short films and worked in TV, but he is making his feature-length debut with the Crisis of Faith horror film The Righteous that he also wrote and stars in. The film is about an older married couple who recently lost their young daughter while they are still grieving, and a strange and mysterious man arrives, and things are not what they seem. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Now, not to take anything away from your directing or your acting, but you likely have been working on the story and script for a much longer period of time. When you won an award for best screenplay during the Fantasia Festival, did it sort of feel like it maybe validated a, a probably very long gestation period for you? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, any kind of recognition like that always, um, always, you know, is a nice shot in the arm and makes you feel pretty good. And and I think uh, kind of like what you said, um, the writing of it is that's really like the dog work. That's that's the hardest stuff. That's the foundation. That's the stuff, you know, most of the notes come from. Um, it's kind of funny, you know, you write a script, you can spend years on it, and then you act the scene, and you can do one take, and it's over. So <laughs> the amount of work that goes into writing something, and, and just 
I wouldn't even say it's it's not the punching of the keys. It's the thoughts, the 3 a.m. wake ups when you're like, oh, I should write that. Oh, I should fix that. I should change that. And then it's also, you know, uh, protecting your script and, and uh, you know, from certain thoughts and notes from the outside and then knowing which ones to let in. So, um, yeah, it, it's a long process. So that is really nice to hear, especially um, where, you know, I, I primarily work as an actor. So it was nice to, to kind of get that shot in the arm, especially for such a great festival with so many wonderful films, wonderful people involved. It, yeah, of course, it feels very good. Awesome. Well, that sort of also leads me a little bit into my, my next question. And maybe can you speak to any of the challenges or difficulties you face as the person who wrote the screenplay quite a while back? And then you were the person who was storyboarding and blocking the film. And then ultimately, you were the person in front of the camera performing. Was there any disconnect or struggles you face when trying to marry the, the three hats you were simultaneously wearing? I, I, I would say no. I actually think it works quite well together to whatever degree. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say... <laughs> It worked very well because I'm so great. It's not about that. It's more, it is a marriage of all those things together. So when you are the writer and the director and the actor, you you have full understanding of what this scene should be based on the vision that you originally have. So I actually find it quite conducive to work that way. Like I, I really like um, I really like uh, directing my own material and actually acting in it if there's a role for it. And in this one, it just all kind of came together. And honestly, the hardest thing is just getting a movie made, especially when you're, you're an actor. You're, you're busy, hopefully. Uh, you know what I mean? You're, you're working on other things and, and you're away for five months. And, and yes, I, I do a lot of writing while I'm working as an actor, like in the trailer or on the plane or when I have a couple of days off. However, uh, it's hard to, the, the groundwork of actually getting it together and put the pieces together, you, you really need a lot of time for that. And I wouldn't even say time, it's space. It's the space to get it to the right people and to wait and then to get it to this place and to get it to that place. And when you're focused on, you know, a six month shoot as an actor, it, it does hamstring you a little bit. So for me, it was always just getting the movie to the stage that we are shooting. I, I found that to be the most difficult. Once we were prepping and, and, and shooting and even editing, that was just, I was having a blast. It was, it was the most fun I've ever had professionally and, and personally. Probably too. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. With the topic of religion so central to the plot and the understanding of the film, specifically the book of Revelations and the story of the four horsemen and the apocalypse, what did your research consist of when trying to match the themes you had in your head to the actual theology? Well, that's a great question. Uh, well, I, I, grew, I, I grew up Catholic. Um, we weren't particularly staunch Catholic, but, you know, we went to, we went to uh, church on Saturday evenings up until I was probably 11 or 12. And, uh, and my mother would still go sometimes. I'd still go Christmas time and stuff like that. And we were taught it in school. So a lot of this stuff I already just kind of knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't take too, too much uh, research in that way. And I also didn't want to go down the path. I'm not interested as a filmmaker really in going fully down the path of the subject completely. Um, because I'm more interested in the human reaction to it. So for me to spend time, like I knew a certain amount of the, the theology, obviously, and I wanted to make it accurate and, and then have a license to kind of change things just in the right way. However, I, I also knew if I went down, made it too theological, then that would distract a bit from what's happening between the characters. And to me, that was the most important thing because I didn't want to be didactic or, or teach the audience about Catholicism. And I also didn't want to make a film that, that judges Catholicism because who am I to judge a religion that helps so many people? Who, uh, how dare I, in a way? 
So I didn't want to go onto that side of things. It was about this guy's relationship with God mm-hmm. um, and the religion that he signed up for and then breaks rules from. And that was the most important thing to me. And I, and I just thought um, Paulson was a great backdrop for that. And, um, and yeah, it was important to me to, to not make that too much of a, a statement. Uh, mm-hmm. Did your own personal beliefs sort of influence maybe the, the attitude that any of the characters in the film have towards religion at all? Yeah, absolutely. And, and more towards God. Uh, because I, I, I find it very, I'm open to any religion that helps anyone and, and makes them happy. Like, you know, I think we all take things from life from different places and sometimes you don't even know where it came from. And sometimes it's religion. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a philosophical thing. Maybe it's a sports uh, idea, like anything. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do find it hard to believe that there is no higher power because it's, this is all such a crazy coincidence to some degree. I don't know what degree that is, but I constantly kind of ruminate on that myself. Because I think it's like it's the ultimate kind of idea is a creator or a judge. Um, and I don't know if it exists or not. And, and I don't think atheists are wrong from their viewpoint. I don't think like, you know, church going Christians are wrong from their viewpoint. That's what makes it interesting. So so my relationship and it was really the idea of here's here's what it really comes down to for me is that your relationship with God, I think, is actually your relationship with yourself to some degree. Because the way you judge yourself, the way you think God might judge you is probably a way that you are inherently aware of with yourself. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, why would you fear of a judgment if you weren't aware of something that you've done that you've judged to not be optimal? You know what I mean? So I think God is kind of within you. So that was sort of my personal connection to it in regards to Frederick's character is that he's aware. He's mm-hmm. burdened by something he's aware of. And therefore, he's afraid of God. And there's, yeah. there's a line in it where my character says... Um, did you think God wasn't looking? Yes. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> yes, you know? yes. That, that's fascinating to hear you say that because watching the film, that's exactly what I got out of it was that idea of the, the God is inside of you. And so that was, that was very interesting to hear you say that and reaffirm that what I was seeing was what, what was happening. Oh, great. Yeah, because you can't run. You can't run from things you know. You mm-hmm. can't run from your subconscious even though we all try really badly and you're like, I feel really bad. I'll just move towns. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Carl might not get you, but you'll get yourself. So yes. I've always found that kind of fascinating that it's like, you can't, you can't just, I always, here's what I find really interesting. And this has, has to do with the film to some degree because, you know, um, to what happens at the end of the film. Uh, I find it really interesting when someone has committed a crime and, and, and I don't know, like I can't give an example, I, I'm not them, but anyone who's committed a crime who knows that they did it, but is pleading not guilty and trying to get away with it, I find it fascinating. Because I'm like, so you're just going to, what if you, you get acquitted? You're just going to live the rest of your life knowing that you did this thing? Like, that's going to come back to get you. It's like, mm-hmm. probably sooner than you think. So that kind of idea fascinates, fascinates me, like trying to get one over on yourself or on God. It's like, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, this movie is absolutely gorgeous to look at. You filmed the movie in black and white, and and I don't want to put too much on you, but I feel it sort of invites comparisons from the viewer to other classic horror films. For me personally, it sort of reminded me of movies like Rebecca, Carnival of Lost Souls, and even Night of the Living Dead, as you sort of played with the looming shadows and the ethereal otherworldliness. I was sort of wondering what reference point you incorporated as a director. 
First of all, I love those references, man. Carnival of Lost Souls, really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I really felt that. Yeah, love that film. Um, talk about making a, a movie out of nothing. Like they had no money in that movie. But um, but Rebecca too, absolutely Rebecca, because you know a gothic, uh, a gothic story. I love the idea of um, the, uh, the 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 gothic nature of the film coming naturally out of Frederick's point of view, which is the subconscious point of view. So when I talked to the production designer, his name is Jason Clark, he's phenomenal and did a lot with very little. Uh, I said, I want everything minimal and, and pointy because I think when you're wading through your subconscious, it feels like something's coming at you a little bit and, and it can stab you at any second. If you, like, for example, if you have the wrong meal, that might make you have the wrong dream about something that you've been thinking about for a long time but weren't aware of it. And then it pokes you. You know what I mean? So I love mm-hmm. that idea of him being poked and the trees with the branches and everything. Everything's just really pointy. And so that is gothic. That's gothic. So I wanted the gothic nature to come from a natural place. Um, but that also comes from someone who just aesthetically, just I, I just love that gothic stuff, like early Tim Burton and, and Cabinet of Dr. Dr. Caligari and, 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 and Rebecca and, and on and on, even Phantom Thread to a degree. Like like I, I love those. So those influences are huge on uh, for me, and obviously, like you know, Night of the Hunter and Persona and um, uh, uh, the, the White Ribbon. Um, so certain black and white references we had to talk about, of course, because we were like, you know, that's what we're doing. But uh, but also like you know the '40s kind of Universal monster movies too. Like you know what I mean? I, I, I there's there's one scene in the film when they first carry me inside, and it looks like it's from a '40s U- Universal Studios. Honda movie, so he was like you know, um, like Bride of Frankenstein or something, and uh, and even her hair actually, Mimi's hair, she has that white straight. I wanted her hair to be like Bride of Frankenstein. The reason why I wanted a lot of these things, and my face being pale to be similar to Passion of Joan of Arc, I wanted to. You can't help but use your influences in film, like like Tarantino. He obviously can't help but do that, but he makes it his own. And for me, I realized at a certain point in, in wanting to make a movie for so long that those things are a part of what I'm going to create. I can't help it anyway. So why deny it? So why don't I use the aesthetic things I like from something in the right way? And when you've watched movies so much, as you clearly have as well, they're, they're just inside you. So you, it's not like I'm going to look for them. And I love that because then it comes out and the pale face from Passion of Joan of Arc to Aaron, it, who I play in, in The Righteous, is a different idea completely. But they work in kind of different ways. So I think you can take from really in some different places. I mentioned before, like William Sadler's death in, uh, in Bill and Ted was a bit of an influence too. Like, you know, you, you, everything kind of influences you in an interesting way. But, um, but I love those, those films from the, the, the 40s so much. Uh, the 30s mm-hmm. and, and noir films too. Like they influence me a lot. I think, I think that maybe that's why it spoke to me so much because that's my preferred decade for horror and I love the noirs as well. And so it's so interesting just hearing you name all these different reference points. And despite that, your movie is still completely its own separate thing. And, you know, there isn't really a lot of overlap thematically and stylistically with all that sort of stuff. You mentioning all those different movies and reference points, I can see exactly where you're pulling from from all that. And it just sort of makes me appreciate it even more. Oh, great. Thanks. And I think that that's like, so important because it can be harped on sometimes. People are like, oh, they just stole this from that. Like, you know, First Reformed is very, very, very similar to Winter Life. Mm-hmm. However, I love First Reformed. Like, I, like who cares? Like, mm-hmm. we, we watch remakes. Like, you know what I mean? Both True Grits are good. Like, so <laughs> it's like, 
it's like it kind of doesn't matter. Like um, it's interesting you, you hear Martin Scorsese talk about there's a, a love scene in uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls of you know the Ebert um, Ken 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 Russell Ken uh, oh what's his name the guy that very exploitive. Yeah, I'm blanking on his name, but yeah, Ebert wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's a shot in it in a love scene in a car where it cuts to a shot of the um oh my god what's the thing on the hood of the car the the emblem like the the yeah, the the hood the ornament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They cut to a shot of that from like a Dutch angle, and and he, and Scorsese says in an interview we love that, and he uses that in Wolf Wall Street. So which mm-hmm. is a totally different kind of thing. I love that because there's only so many ways you can film something too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you had mentioned the the tree earlier because outside the house where most of the action takes place, there's this beautiful and gigantic overbearing tree with plenty of thick branches hanging from it. When you were looking for locations to film, did that tree just sort of scream out something that needed to be photographed? 100%. We saw that house, which that house on the inside is nothing like it is in the film. It's very, very different. We built, we built around that. Um, but when I saw that yard, I fell to my knees. I was like, this is the greatest thing. And this tree, because a lot of it has to do with the heavens and there's some nature ideas in there too and um and uh and then there's that long branch and the dp scotty mcclellan i was talking about how there's a swing set in the film i said i don't want to reveal the swing set until later and so we don't know what he's working um and and we were just talking about it and because i don't like the storybook because i can't draw so i kind of always use filmic references i'm like remember this movie but it's a bit of, like this shot <laughs> i have to combine shots to discuss it and then we'll like write it down and we put post post-it notes all over his office of like every scene of basically what we're doing. Cause you don't want to hammer too hard because you know, you want the actors to create on the set and come up with walking as well. But, but with that tree, he saw the tree and we were just talking. I was like, we can go from here. And then he ran back to the end of the yard and he was like, look at this. And I was like, that is everything <laughs> that is, mm-hmm. it says a lot. I don't even know fully what it says, but it somehow does about the movie all i knew was i wanted a wide of the of the swing set and then when i saw that i mean it kind of encapsulated a lot and that that's what's great about uh, photography in film it's like something can say a lot and you don't even really know what it is but you're drawn to it for some reason and uh mm-hmm. and i love that but i that's credit to scott mcclellan our dp yeah as soon, as soon as i saw that wide shot of the tree it just like it like blows you away of like, yes, this needed to be in this film. And like, I could just imagine of like you trying to figure out how to centralize that around like, okay, well, how do we get this into the film? This needs to be here. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've kind of gone off of my own metaphorical foray about that tree, which is kind of like, you know, here's a normal tree and it's been normal for a long time. Now there's this crazy branch coming out of it. Kind of like Aaron showing up into their lives. That was all mm-hmm. normal. There's this crazy thing that kind of looks out of place. So that's what it ended up being in my head. Um, because I think so many times I'm always like, the tree means which is really funny that I think that. <laughs> now, the film is essentially a three-hander with you and then two Canadian legends in Henry Zerny and Mimi Kuzik. What was the process like in ensuring that you had the right people to play Frederick and Ethel? Oh, my God, it's everything. So so I wrote it with Mimi in mind. I worked with Mimi very briefly on something before, trying to make another film, and we did like this pitch tape. And... Um, and Mimi was there. I was just like, man, she's phenomenal. And I'd seen her in other things. She's such a good actor. And, and, and she just does so much work. I always say this. It, it sounds, I can't put it in a better way, but so much work is done on her face. Her face just reads. She's really, she goes through it in a way that it reads so well. It's really strange. She reminds me of Mads Mikkelsen. It's like there's so much just written on that face in each scene. Not saying that they're not experiencing it, 
But when she experiences it, there's so much that is written on her face that other people, I can't do. I just don't know what it is. I don't know how she does it. If it's a, it's a mix between her physical characteristics on her face and her talents. It's like, it's, it's mind blowing. So anyway, she was always in my head and, uh, and I actually had another actor in mind for Frederick for a while. And then I did Ready or Not with Henry and, uh, and he's the greatest guy and I just loved him. And, and we stayed in touch. We'd go to dinner and we hung out a lot afterwards. And, um, and then I, I saw him at the premiere for Ready or Not in LA. And, you know, there was a lot of people there and stuff. And I saw Henry and I, and I didn't get to talk to him as much as I wanted to. We all kind of hung out for a bit. And I said, he was like, how are you doing? I was like, I'm about to make my first film. And he said, how come you haven't called me? <laughs> and I was like, ah. And then forgot about it. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it because he looks like someone who has a lot. And, and if he loses it, what would that do to him? Like, and then he's just such a great actor on top of it. I was like, what? Because he grounded, ready or not, is, is such a great film. And I credit everybody involved with that. But he had a lot of legwork to do in that. He had to explain a lot of the film. And he had to not be a bad guy but he obviously is evil to some degree like it's a really difficult part and i always thought about it after i first you know henry walks a tight line in that and then i thought in this it's the same thing it's a really tight line um so then i was like there's no way i can't have henry <laughs> yeah of course of course now i mentioned earlier that you had wrote directed and starred in the righteous but you're also acting in a new fl- film blue bayou that premiered at con Justin Chan, much like you with your film, is playing Triple Duty, having written, directed, and starred in it. Did you two talk together about your experiences of doing something so monumental? All the time. We talked about it all the time. <laughs> Justin was, it was really interesting because he was in the thick of it. I mean, we were shooting, and he's doing all of it. And we'd still hang out at night. Like, I don't know how Justin, he has a lot of energy. Like, he can just go. And I was in the middle of prep over the phone, basically. So uh, we talked about it a lot. What I like about Justin is, he he enjoys it. Like he really enjoys it. Like we had a good time making the film, and you can get wrapped up, especially in prep. You can get wrapped up in the importance of it all and your film and your story to tell. But like you really have to enjoy what you do, and that breeds a better product too. And I and I saw that with Justin. And then on top of it, like he's just so um, he's pretty effortlessly talented. Like I know he puts a lot of work in, but as an actor and director on set. It, it, it comes very easily uh, to him, and and I was amazed by that. But also, like with his performance, he sets the tone with his performance without even having to say much to start. And and I picked up on that. I really saw that. I was like, oh, you can kind of do that rather than going in and telling everyone. I don't like that as an actor when a director is like, okay, so you're gonna go here and you're gonna do this. You're like, okay, can I have like a second? <laughs> feel it out. Like I've never held this prop before. It might be nice. Just give me a minute. Um, and Justin just like lets you fall into it. And then it's like slight little changes here and there. And it was interesting because our films couldn't be more different. Um, this is a real human drama about a topical, important issue. And mine is like a mystery sort of, uh, it's a conscious dread filled, <laughs> like psychological horror. Like, but it goes to show that, um, and jumping from one to the other, it's like, all the same you're just going for something that's real and something original no matter what the genre wow that's awesome to hear and i guess the last thing i want to know is what does the future hold for the righteous well uh we're going to atlantic film festival in halifax in uh, like 10 days or two weeks i think it's september 19th and then it's going to grim fest in manchester in england which is which is a great festival for as well so 
other than that, there is uh, a lot. There are a lot of discussions happening right now with the particular distribution of the film, which is uh, very exciting. So I don't have anything confirmed to announce, but I think uh, something soon um, will be announced. And uh, I wish I had more to give you, but I ha- I don't have anything else myself. But it, it will be. But it's looking good. It's looking good that it's going to be seen. In- Amazing. Well, I can't wait for more people to see this because I know people are going to fall in love with it as much as I did. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Dakota. I really appreciate it. Well, that interview was a ton of fun to do, and and people will need to make sure to stay peeled for when it could be seen by a wider audience. I know Mark was a little disappointed he didn't have any news to share about it other than a few festival appearances coming up. But either way, I'll make sure I'll share some news if that gets a distribution deal or, or what have you. I really loved all the horror movies that he listened. He listed as inspirations from stuff like Bride of Frankenstein to Persona to The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. All excellent things. Next, we have Rachel's interview with Travis Tout, the writer and director of the South African action thriller Indemnity. Is there anything you want to say to set this interview up, Rachel? Uh, not too much other than it was obviously really great to talk to, him, uh, to Travis and for him to make some time for me. Um, in his pretty busy press schedule. Uh, and just to let you know, so the way that it, it's kind of an abrupt entrance into the uh, interview, it's not going to be as swish of an intro as yours is, uh, just because I didn't know if I was going to be putting this on the podcast or on my website. So it wasn't exactly recorded um, with a podcast in mind, if I'm completely honest. So yeah, but have a listen. Hope you guys enjoy. Kind of like uh, WTF with Mark Marin, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're already recording and listening to these people talk? Great. I feel like I yeah. already am missing some information here. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's just it's just all of a sudden you're in the middle of two people's conversations. Yeah. Ten minutes later, the the interview subject's like, so are we recording yet? Yeah. <laughs> That's always an awkward baby. thing, actually. <laughs> That's an awkward. I, I have to say. When I did my set interview, um, which you can listen to um, on my website, that one, I, they, there was a moment of, oh, are we recording already? And I'm like, yeah, we're recording. <laughs> but I think I might have edited it out. Nice. <laughs> okay. didn't make me laugh. Well, have a listen to Rachel's interview with Travis Tout. What is going on? Someone try to kill me, Moses. <laughs> you don't have that kind of power. What if I did? And this testimony relates to an investigation into MTech and its experimental program known as Indemnity. What if together we and others like us can take back this continent? How? Do you mind talking about the process of getting Indemnity from an idea in your head to this moment here? So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, the idea for Indemnity... um, really started about eight years ago. Um, I'd actually um, been just randomly, I don't know, reading the news one day and I stumbled across this article and I was just, um, and it was about um, soldiers returning from Afghanistan um, and and their um, difficulty uh, readapting to to life and and, and their their struggle and sort of the the lack of support system that was there for them. And then, yeah, I started doing research closer to home um, and, and, and really um, in, in, with regards to first responders specifically. Um, and, and there was just so many interesting stories um, in that uh, with regards to firefighters. And I was, there's this one story I read that really stuck with me. Um, and that was that, you know, 
something as simple as a car accident, um, you know, you understand what the purpose of a paramedic is when they're there, if someone's alive, you understand what the, the, the police's job is there, and you also understand what a fireman would be doing there if there is if, if they need us to extract someone from a vehicle. But there was something else that I read that which was, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that um, you know, if if it is a really terrible accident and and I mean gruesome in a sense that, you know, um, bodies that are in various states of of yeah, uh going apart or whatever, for lack of a better word of saying that, um, um, it's actually up to the fireman to clean that up. And that to me was um, really hectic and gruesome. And I felt like, wow, why are people not talking about this, um, you know, anymore? Especially, you know, firefighters who form the backbone of our society. Um, you know, they're celebrated when there's a fire and they put out the fire, but there's so many other things that they do that people don't actually um, know about. Um, and then, you know, on a more personal level, um, I, I, it had really resonated with me in the sense that, what in my experience, you know, um, there's the stigma attached to mental health and the way that men in particular deal with mental health. And more than that, people, men of color, um, you know, every time, you know, there's, there's an incident that's kind of like swept under the rug um, and, and there's an unwillingness to speak openly about it. Various reasons, I think, you know, we just groom that way. From, from, you know, culturally, from what we've seen on television and the way that a man is supposed to be and this idea of what a man is supposed to be. Um, and I thought it very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, even, you know, close to home, my dad embodies that so much in the sense that whenever there's, um, you know, something very, very difficult to talk about, um, the, the option would be to just not talk about it. Um, and that for me was just something so bizarre because the more you speak about it, the more you realize how everyone is dealing with some form of trauma. Um, and it was really, it was really that that was like the impetus for, for the development of the project. Um, and, and, and really sort of trying to understand why that is. Um, and then taking it a step further was considering how, you know, much of a, um, problem this is um, across different societies, um, what would happen if that was weaponized? Um, and then from there, the rest of the film was kind of built out. Um, and I knew that, you know, when I was growing up, I loved action films. They're, it's like one of my favorite genres. Um, and, and there was a particular kind of action film that I really like used to love. And I felt like they were in its, it was in its heyday in like early 90s, mid 90s, early noughties. Had these like amazing, like these action films have these like awesome set pieces yeah. and this incredible scale. However, it was grounded in something character driven. You know, Enemy of the State, Man on Fire, Jason Bourne, you know, as much as they were these crazy action films, there was something really sim simply about a character going through something traumatic. Um, and I found, you know, I found there was a really interesting way in which, you know, you could make this genre film and have it be entertaining, but still, you know, highlight something very topical. You know, Enemy of the State was dealing with privacy. Uh, Man of Fire was dealing with trafficking. But 
it, you know, it was it was led in, in a very subversive way. And so by design, I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to do something that was entertaining. I knew I wanted to make a genre film, but I also felt, you know, I had an opportunity and a responsibility, you know, to try and impart something that I feel really, um, you know, strong about in the film. And so it really sort of developed and, and, it, and it hit, um, yeah, from from those kind of core ideas, it was really sort of an amalgamation of of how this uh, the process of the of the of the of the script came to be, um, and yeah, it went through a number of different iterations um, before we ultimately um, locked finance, and I think it was late 2019, um, and then we went into production um, in February 2020, um, and we got about three weeks into production when this amazing thing called COVID hit uh, and, and we went into like an incredibly, like just a hard lockdown pretty, pretty um, instantaneously. Um, and so we'd only managed to get three weeks in and then we had to shut down. So that was so depressing. And, you know, we waited so long to make this movie and here it is. Gosh, we can't even, we can't even finish it. But then we were very lucky in the sense that um, I think a few months later in June last year, um, our restriction levels dropped a little bit. Um, and so we got to go back and, and, and finish the film, which was uh, very interesting to say the least, because we were kind of the guinea pigs, actually, you know, for, for the industry. Um, we were the first production to go back post COVID, uh, post the lockdown. And so we had these like intense set of protocols that was, that was issued to us by the governing body, like the film Institute in South Africa, like no intimate scenes, um, no, no, no fight scenes, no, like less physical contact. And we were like, but we're making an action film. How are we going to do this? Um, so it, it took a lot of navigating and kind of just readjusting our mindset. Um, but we managed to make it through. I had an incredible um, team, you know, producers and, and cast and crew that were just so, they believed in the project so much that, you know, everyone took every extra precaution to, to, to really see it realized. Um, and so, yeah, that was pretty incredible. That's insane. I did notice that when, when I saw the date on your post being like June 2020, I went, how did they do that in June 2020? <laughs> I know that Jared did all of his stunts or most yeah, of his yeah, stunts. One. That's crazy to me. Um, what was the discussion like with talking with him and the stunt coordinators um, about what the fighting style was going to be? It was interesting because it kind of all happened organically. So, so I knew that I wanted to approach it in a very grounded way, in a way that was very realistic. Um, and and for that to happen, I you know was like you you compare it to like for example John Wick. It's a very stylized kind of fighting. You know what I mean? And and, and the way in which they move. And and for me, this I always felt like you know Theo he had. He has the ability to do a lot of damage, but he never chooses to. You know, everything that is done, every fight sequence is in self-defense. Um, and, and so the, the, the fighting choreography was really born out of that, that it needs to be an extreme sense of self-defense. And so we do use different sort of fighting um, um, techniques, Krav Maga, there's um, some jiu-jitsu in there, but everything is born out of a, um, a, a defense um, and, and in this case, an extreme sense of self-defense um, in Theo's case. And so for, for <clears throat> when, I, when I was casting the film, um, I'd actually looked at, oh, I'd looked at pretty much every known actor around the country. Um, in South Africa, we don't really have movie stars. We have 
uh, soapy stars. Those are like our big celebrities because people just watch television. Um, and, and we were really like, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to ground this film and, and, and anchor it in someone that is emotionally vulnerable so that you can believe in this journey and you believe in the fighting and why it's happening. And so it's interesting because just yesterday I was having a conversation, um, you know, with Jared about this um, and, and, and him saying that he never felt like he was the right person for the role, even when he came to audition. It felt like, you know, he imagined someone else but bigger, but um, more physical, you know what I mean? Uh, and I was like, you know, that's so interesting because you do, you, when I, I think when I was writing the script, I had this idea of, you know, because we were dealing with issues of toxic masculinity and we were sitting in a, in a, in a fire department, this idea that of, of, of what a fireman looks like that you have in your head. Uh, and so somehow automatically, you know, it reads as someone towering, muscular, and, and you know, it's, it's kind of stereotypical. And Jared came into the room and he had this vulnerability that no one else had. And, and pretty much on the, from the first screen test, I was like, this is our guy. And, and for me, it was, it was, you know, the emotion is more important than the action because the action you can learn, you know, and, and, but, but you need someone who can carry the weight of, of what we're dealing with on screen. And so Jared really embodied that for me. I was fortunate in the sense that Jared is an incredibly fit guy. Like he does parkour. He used to be, he used to be a gymnast once upon a time. And so it actually made it really, really um, easy for us. I say easy for me, but for Jared, it was quite intense. Um, we had we had an amazing um, team of, of uh, my my um, uh, um, stunt coordinator and and the fight choreographer. I mean, these are guys who have been working in the industry for years, um, and and that work on you know there are a lot of international productions that come and shoot in South Africa. And and they're often on those productions. They did the stunt choreography for Mad Max Fury Road, uh, for Tomb Raider. So these big productions, but we never ever as South Africans can. We've never had the opportunity to tell a form of the scale before, and it's often for financial reasons. You know, action is a bit more expensive to produce, and it isn't necessarily a guarantee of return. Um, and so, knowing what the ambition of the project was, they really believed in it, um, and they believed in wanting to create something proudly South African that they can then also put their stamp on. And so it all came together rather beautifully. Um, and Jared underwent about three months of intensive training. Um, it was first like just cardio and then some conditioning and then the fight choreography. Um, and I have to give all credit to him. You know, he was so committed. Um, and, and, and going through the training um, quite early, we all recognized that he might be able to do all his stunts. Um, and it was really just a conversation with him and we were like, you know what, that's something that I've like, you know, I often find in films, it's like, it's like what you were saying earlier about all the cutting points or it's a specific way of filming to try and make them look great. When in actual fact, if, if they got it right, all you need to do is just be a fly on the wall and watch it happen. And I feel like that is so dynamic. Um, and he got it so quickly. Um, and I mean, he was so game to, to, to wanting to do all these own stunts, including the stunt where we hung him out the, um, the 21st story of a window, which was real. It was no green screen. He was literally suspended in this wire, uh, like 20 stories up. And I mean, gosh, I was nervous for him, but, uh, <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, he was he was incredible, and he just he took it in his stride um, and really was committed to to doing a property. Um, and so with that attitude and and knowing that I wanted to make something really grounded and and the team that I was surrounded by, it really all just came together so beautifully. Um, and yeah, I was I was very blessed to have a team that I work with, and so. Hopefully the end result is something that people also go, wow, I can't believe he did it all, all himself because um, that was something that was so so important to me. So you brought up the hotel scene. I have like a million questions yeah. about that because <laughs> I saw that. And and so I saw in the kind of the press notes, they said, well, Jared, Jared does his own, all of his own stunts. So yeah. when I'm watching, I was just like, oh, it's so cool. Like, he, you know, this guy's doing doing his own fighting. I said, it looks great. Like there's not a lot of cutting, like quick cuts and things like that. Then it gets to the hotel scene and I'm watching and I'm just like, oh my God, he's about to like Tom Cruise this thing. I was like, he is, I was like, this is insane. And then there's, you have the beautiful shot, which I don't know if it was a drone, if it's helicopter of like going around him. And like, I was like, oh, I think that's him. I was like, because you can see it. I was like, that's him. I was like, that's insane. Could you talk a little bit more about how you did that? So yeah, that, that one took quite a bit of planning. Um, and, and, and funnily enough, it was one of the very first stunts we did. I think we filmed that in our first week. Um, and it was the one I was both dreading the most and looking forward to the most. Uh, just because I was like, well, we, this, we can pull this off and it could be awesome or I don't want to entertain that, that alternative. Um, but we, um, so what, what, how, how we approached it was that, um, well, it, it started with, I knew that I wanted to find a building that had glass, right? Cause I felt like, you know what, that's just scary, scary as like, there's nothing to hold on to. If you fall, you fall. And from there, um, yeah, we really sort of hunted the location. We found this, um, hotel that had not been in use for, for, for quite a long time. Um, and working with them, we were able to go in there um, and really figure out how we were going to do this. So essentially, we kind of broke it up into little pieces. Um, the first part, which was him climbing out of the window um, and then positioning himself to climb down, was uh, required a certain kind of harness. Um, and that was one that was sort of strapped to his back so that um, if he moved, all we had to do was just remove the harness at the back. Then we had a, then once we got into that position, um, we sort of cut and then reset and then we had to change the harness, um, just for the, for the drop, um, which was a very, very, uh, scary but technical thing in that, um, it was timed so that, you know, we had people on pulleys a few floors up and this harness and it was like literally, okay, cool, dropping him and one, two, three, dropped him for two seconds and then, hung on to it again. Um, and that's how the world was like in bits and pieces like that. <laughs> and, then, and I mean, we filmed it for about a half a day with him, him hanging out the side of the, of that building. Um, but yeah, we, we were, we, we try to take it like piece by piece. Um, and yeah, the rest, I mean, the, that was really it. It was, it was, um, we just, uh, had him on a harness. Um, and then, um, we had the, the curtain hanging out the window. Um, and whenever, like when you see the shot of the police officers pulling, um, you know, that's him hanging on and trying to pull himself up. Um, and yeah, I just took it bit by bit. To go back to what you're talking about, at its core, the movie is about trauma. It's about PTSD. It's about mental health. I'm always fascinated with using science fiction 
to talk about trauma and to talk about things like PTSD. And I thought that even though this is, this is very much so in the action genre, the weaponizing of it, that has sci-fi elements to it. You know, it's there, there are those elements. Could you talk about how you came up with that idea of let's weaponize it, let's show it in a different way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always knew that the, the idea to weaponize it would borderline, was borderline sci-fi. Um, but what I tried to do was really, was, was grounded in, in, in quite a bit of research. And so, you know, there have been all these different kinds of programs that you've read about, you know, uh, behavioral modification, um, you know, this clandestine programs from the CIA to, you know, MK Ultra, which was a which was a big one. Um, in our country, we had um, quite a lot of experimental programs like that. Um, there was a in, in the old sort of apartheid regime, um, there was a there was a military doctor called Voter Besson. Um, who who had this nickname um, in the media? They called him Doctor Death um, because of the experimentation that he was conducting on certain on, on, on people to try and find new forms of chemical weapons or biological weapons. And um, you know, in doing the research, I read so many accounts of of trying to create the perfect soldier. You know, um, and and what that what that means and what that takes and how that's possible and, and, and how, you know, whether you have to be a willing participant and, and, and submit to that kind of programming or whether it was something that could actually be done um, unwittingly, you know, against your will and whether someone had access to try and, you know, um, in terms of the makeup, the chemical makeup in our brains, would it be possible for someone to do that? Um, and so the debate was that, you know, amongst various people that some believed it was possible and some didn't. And I found that incredibly interesting because I thought, you know, just just in terms of my own experience, um, you know, when I was in therapy once upon a time, it was such an enlightening experience for me and being able to, to, to understand how our psychology works and what dictates certain behaviors. Um, that has always been a field that has been like extremely fascinating to me personally. Um, and so, so the idea was really, it, it really was formed from that sort of what if premise. Um, what if this could happen? Um, and, and for me, it was trying to find a way to bridge it organically to the, to the overarching theme in the film, which was PTSD. Um, and then in a very, um, you know, in a very objective way, um, there's, there's, there's sort of another, um, storyline happening this, this, that speaks to the larger conspiracy in the film, um, which was a, a white man, um, you know, trying to, um, recolonize Africa but you know essentially um, his rhetoric to the public is that he's a savior you know um, and I thought this character was so interesting and I want to do sub- uh, subvert the expectation because that kind of politician these days in South Africa you would expect to be a black man or um, and so there was a lot of purposeful um, like there was a lot of intent to try and you know change the perception of certain characters or or create them um, um, in a way that the audience wouldn't um, expect that of a particular character and so speaking to that larger um, you know storyline where we have this politician who is essentially using this program 
um, to, to, to further his agenda. I found when I was reading the stats, when I was reading, you know, the, uh, the idea, the, when I was thinking about the idea of creating a super soldier and then reading the stats on PTSD in terms of how many people there are, I was like, yes, yes, it just, it makes sense to me. Like if someone had to be able to weaponize that, wouldn't that be something so traumatic for all of us? Um, and, and, and although it's borderline science fiction, it's still somewhere possible, um, you know, somehow possible. And so, yeah, it really was just a sort of combination of, of, of these thoughts um, and these experiences that I've had that kind of dictated what the ultimate result was. Amazing. Um, you've brought up South Africa and... I just actually did an interview with a South African-born director, Kelsey Egan, yes. who also has a movie yeah. at uh, Fantasia, yeah. Glasshouse. And I spoke with her briefly about this as well, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. And it was about this idea that as a South African filmmaker, a lot of times, especially over here in Canada, most of the time when people think of South African films, I think they try to go towards apartheid-related um, yeah. works. Whether right or wrong, you know, I mean, it's obviously a very important time in the history of your country and deserves mention. And it obviously has influenced and affected lots and will continue to like, yeah. who knows the extent of how far it's going to go. But she was talking about kind of a bit of a frustration that it feels like the only way a South African movie can make it onto a world stage yeah. is if it's about apartheid. But I was wondering if you could just talk about that, of having to break out of, of a pigeonhole that the rest of the world kind of put you in. Absolutely. And you know what? It, it is a pigeonhole. And, and I think, um, you know, it's apartheid has been this sort of omnipresent theme in, in so many South African films. And I think, um, there was a long time where, you know, um, to echo Kelsey's words, where it felt like that was the only kind of film being made. Um, and, and, and for various reasons, I think, you know, the bodies, the governing bodies here where you can actually apply to finance for it and finance a film, were really looking for those kinds of films that they believe would really resonate with South African audiences. Um, and, and to a certain extent, some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. Um, and I think a lot of them didn't because, you know, just like the rest of the world, you know, um, South Africans enjoy genre films, genre films, genre um, TV series. We love action. We love sci-fi. We love fantasy. You go onto Netflix, you look at the top 10, what's trending at the moment. It is a new action film. It'll be number one. Um, and so it was always this bizarre disconnect in that, there's a certain kind of film we love, um, but there's also a certain kind of film that is expected of us to make. Um, and, and besides, you know, certain powers that be looking for projects like that, I also think there was a particular kind of film that, that, that could be made in South Africa. Um, and that's purely for financial reasons. So in, in, in South Africa, our box office, like I was saying earlier, we have TV stars and not really, we don't really have movie stars. Um, and, and if you look at all the places that you can finance a film, um, it's really quite a few. Um, and DSTV, which is um, our sort of pay, uh, pay TV, um, basically cable television, they invest quite a lot in films, and, and, and in South African films, they actually invest the most, and they're pretty much a part of every single film. But what was interesting, interesting in you know from that side is that we, based on the budgets that we knew made money at the box office, 
um, you know, it meant that there was a particular kind of film or a certain price point that a film needed to be made at. And it needed to be less than this. And when you looked at that budget, it meant that it could only be a drama, potentially a horror or a comedy because they're a little bit cheaper to produce, right? And you really never got to push the envelope. And so with this film, and I find, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a younger generation of filmmakers that are going, you know, this is what we grew up with. This is what we love, right? We want to make the kind of things that we get to be entertained by, that we want to watch, that we love. You know, no one wants to, on a Friday night, put on a film about apartheid, you know? You want, you want to watch something funny or you want to watch something dope in terms of action or, you know, something world building. And, and that's really kind of why we got into this industry. So it really is, you know, you, you talk about seeing some awesome genre content coming from South Africa. It's because, you know, people are really trying to push the envelope and change the perception of what kinds of films can be made in South Africa. Um, and, and, you know, we're such an incredibly diverse country. I mean, we have 11 official languages. There's like, I don't know, how many different races and within those races, cultures and traditions. It's such a fascinating world to explore. Um, and and I, when I was, I think not even like a couple of weeks ago, I read this article about, you know, the breakdown of content from around the world um, in terms of what people are consuming. And less than 3% of content comes from the continental Africa. Um, that is an exceptionally low number. And yet, we have this amazing history with so many stories and so many different mythologies and such amazing worlds to explore. And I think people are really trying to break the mold and go, you know what, what, how can we do this? If we can't get, you know, if we can't, people are telling us we can't make a film like this. How do we change that? And how do we make it happen? And I think people are just being bolder. Um, and, and, and the result is seeing a different kind of film come from the country, which is very, very exciting for all of us because, you know, the more films there are like that, that do well, the bigger the industry gets, it grows organically. Um, and so we all get to continue making more and more films. And I think, you know, what, what, what's really playing a, a big role um, in, in, in that movement is the likes of streamers, the Netflixes, the Amazons. You know, before, if you had to ask me two years ago, how can I watch a film in Lebanon? Really wouldn't have no idea. And you know, but but now with Netflix, you can you can you can get content all over the world and you can go, well, ah, oh, those people look like me, uh, maybe they don't sound like me, but they're doing the same things. We all have, you know, there are things that are universally relatable as a as human beings. And I think that's what, you know, uh, I think the younger generation of filmmakers are trying to tap into the universal themes set within a unique South African subculture, but it doesn't have to be a, a, a South African film that's defined by our history. You know, we have a lot more to say and a lot more, a lot more stories to tell. And so um, I think it's an exciting time to be in the industry. And I think, um, you know, just, just there's, there's this new wave of filmmakers that are going, well, this is possible. You know, the, and the rest of the world is also opening up to stories from Africa. And I think um, it's that sort of combination of these uh, things over the last couple of years that's really sort of helped push the industry here forward and the kinds of films that are being made here. Well, there we go. This really does wrap up our coverage of this year's Fantasia Festival. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing that interview and sharing it with, with ContraZoom, Rachel. That was a lot of fun. 
No problem. And actually, I just want to point out something for Mark O'Brien, um, which is he's got a new movie coming out. Uh, I believe you mentioned it in your interview as well with Justin Chan um, called Blue Bayou. Mm-hmm. He is excellent, 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 excellent in the in the film. He plays. Uh, uh, he's not really the villain, but he is. He is. He's in there, and he kind of comes up as a bad guy at the beginning. But he's he's incredible in it, and I actually didn't put it together that it was the same guy from The Righteous, which actually is probably um, a huge compliment to him and his acting because, um, yeah, two completely different characters. And he, for me, was a standout in that movie. Yeah, I know, you know, I'm going to spill some secrets here. You asked me to tell him that uh, I didn't get the (laughs) chance to in the interview. So, Mark, if you do end up listening to this, I apologize that my co-host really loved your performance in Blue Bayou. Loved it. So (laughs) good. He was so good in it. And, like, I'm a huge Justin Chan fan, and that's why I went to go watch the movie. And it was kind of funny that I came away from it being like, I mean, no, but I was like, that white guy was really good. (laughs) And then it turns out it's, Oh, right. He was in The Righteous. And I completely watched the movie. And not only in The Righteous, he wrote and directed that movie. So, yeah, yeah. yeah but no, good, honestly, it's, it, and it's a great movie as well. So I think it comes out September 17 in Canada and in the States. So go I do and like get Alicia that a watch. Mikander. Yeah, she's in it. She's good. Yeah. She's all right. <laughs> she's in it. All right. I'm not really, I'm not, I don't know if I'm supposed to be full on reviewing the movie yet, but um, she's in it. And yep. uh, yeah, she's. She's there. That's she's, fair, there. That's she's fair. an Oscar winner and she's there. And that's, that's it. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, Rachel, what have you been working on and where can people find you? Uh, I'm just going to bump a couple interviews. I said it in the last episode, but um, just if you haven't gone to check out my interviews with Riz Ahmed and Bassam Tariq for their movie, uh, Mogul Mowgli, and then also an interview I did with Simu Lu. Uh, Liu, sorry, um, for Shang-Chi. Those are both out on Exclaim. And also, TIFF is underway right now, so you can go and check out. I'm going to have a lot of coverage between my site, that shelf, and Exclaim as well. That was a lot of plugs. RachelKH.com. You didn't include that. Yes, sorry. (laughs) There's a lot of plugs without me actually saying what my website is. Yeah, rachelkh.com, and you can get me on Twitter and Instagram, underscore rachelkh. Awesome. Yes, make sure people do check that out because you're going to be doing lots of great coverage for TIFF, which you'll then reveal all that you saw on this show in a few more weeks. But Absolutely. Uh, follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod, and let us know if you got either The Righteous or Indemnity playing during the run of Fantasia. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out.